0: Three years ago, or two years ago, back in 2015, I started a four-year series, um, once a year, on what the church is about, and the church that Jesus is building. There's a number of books that have helped me as I put these sorts of things together, certainly one by a fellow named Davis has helped me, and just give, helps with outlines and those sorts of things, but I have just wanted to kind of share, what, what makes Parksville Baptist Church tick, and what are the sort of things that, um, uh, that mark us apart? You'll notice in your bulletin, uh, particularly the outlines from the last two years' messages, and I thought that would be helpful just so that you're aware of what we've talked about. Back in 2015, I wanted to just give a, a broad overview of what the church believes. And in fact, I like the phrase, better what the church teaches, because I recognize that not, a, not everyone believes yet what our statement of faith is, but it's certainly what we teach. And so it was just a broad outline of those sorts of things. Um, last year, in 2016... I wanted to give a little bit of a summary about what the church is, and so we looked at some of the biblical metaphors of the church, and then uh, I talked about the, the local expression of that in Parps, Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church, and what all of those word means in this local geographic contest, or context. What I want to talk about today is the means of grace. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Uh, it's a, a, a fairly common term, I guess, in church circles, but... Uh, the means of grace are, are ways in which instruments through which God communicates his grace to us as God's people. Uh, and so when I talk about a means, uh, simply it's an instrument um, or a thing through which an effect is communicated to us. And the thing that I'm talking about being communicated to us is grace. Grace is a gift. It is a blessing that we receive from God. Christians often talk about grace as undeserved or unmerited. And so there's things that God gives us out of his rich character and out of his person that he just graciously gives to us as his people, ways in which he blesses us. And so I want to look at five means of grace, five ways in which God communicates to us spiritual blessings. And they are things that we hold um, uh, strongly to here at this church, and it's things that I think that every Christian should hold strongly to. And so again, when I speak of means of grace in the context of the church today, what I'm talking about are the ways God usually uses to cause Christians to grow and mature in Christ and experience the benefits of Christ. So the means of grace. There's a text that um, I think summarizes uh, uh, this in, in just a challenge to us as uh, God's people. In Second uh, Peter, the end of that chapter, chapter 3, uh, verse 18, where Peter simply says to the people, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So how do we grow in those things? Five ways. The first is through the Word of God. The Word of God. And I like to think that through this means of grace we receive many things, but certainly one of them is sanctification. We've talked often about the primacy of the, uh, the importance of the preaching of the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God, that the Bible is our foundation. But what about in our private life? What about the Word of God in our day-to-day lives as individual Christians that are separate from the corporate gathering of God's people? There's a text that many of us are familiar with in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 10, and it's this encounter that Jesus has with Mary and Martha, and uh The text goes like this They went on their way, and Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will be not taken away from her. You have here two sisters with two different agendas. The one sister is distracted by the task of serving. Not a wrong thing, but that's what she is engaged in, embraced and is serving. The other one is sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to her. As you Uh, heard me read it you could realize that there was this tension brewing and no doubt as Martha came and went from the room as Jesus was talking and Mary was listening Martha was getting madder and madder and madder finally she comes to Jesus and she says listen tell my sister to help me and Jesus's response to her is Mary has chosen the good portion I doubt that the problem here was that they were talking about scripture in the home I doubt the problem that Jesus was. The, I doubt the problem was that Jesus was talking about there. But it seems that what was going on in this home is Mary thought that there were things that were more important than the word of God. There were things that had a greater priority or a greater, greater urgency, more pressing at that moment than the word of God. Jesus, on the other hand, expressed to her that the most important thing was listening to God, and that that was something that needed to be given a priority, and it must be a priority through deliberate neglect of other things if necessary his response was that mary had chosen the better thing hearing the word of god and that hearing the word of god is more important than a meal let me kind of unpack that or help us understand what does it look like in our life when we think about this in our own lives when it comes to reading the bible I'm i'm sure we've all wrestled with reading the bible It's such a critical part of a Christian's life. And I'm sure some of you have come across uh, biographies of people who would read the Bible for three, four, five hours a day. And you you think to yourself, how can that ever be possible? How can anybody conceivably read the Bible for three or four hours a day? So what's reasonable? Well, I think probably what's reasonable for most of us is about 10 to 20 minutes a day. And it's a daily habit that we should be able to commit to that amount of time. When should we read? Well, that's really up to you. There's a variety of times that we can read. Some of us are morning people, and we can get up early in the morning, and we're fresh, and we're bright, and the day hasn't started yet, and we can commit 10 or 15, 20 minutes to reading. Some of us are evening people, and uh, you know we, we, we're not started till about noon, and by the time we hit 10 or 11 at night, we're wide awake and we're ready to go. Other of us are afternoon people. It really doesn't matter much. It just means finding your schedule, the way that you are built, and beginning to carve out some time during the day when you can read the Bible. As far as I have found in my Christian life, reading the Bible has never been easy. Nor has it ever been something that seems to come natural to me. There's always things that are competing for my time. There's always things, particularly, that press out from me a commitment to reading the Scripture. There's a number of things that I do in my own life that, 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 that help me. But I think what we learn from this text, at least, is that we need to be merry-like. We need to be committed in our lives that if it's the Bible or breakfast, we read the Bible. If it's the Bible or watching the news, we read the Bible. If it's the Bible and making time in my day, then I add 15 minutes at the beginning or 15 minutes at the end of the day. That's the only way it's going to normally happen in your life or my life. There's too much that conspires against us that drives us away from reading the Bible and we become Martha-like and we're distracted by so much that goes on in our world. So we need to be committed to reading the Bible on a regular basis. You might be very new to all this. Where do you start? I don't know if you've ever wrestled with that. The Bible is a big book. It's 66 uh, chapters. It's got, some that are, um, it's got some books that are one page long. And it's got other books that are almost mini books in themselves. And you think, well, where do I start? I don't really think it matters much where you start. Uh, But you might want to pick a gospel or you might want to pick a book of the Bible. I've often found it more helpful to work my way through one book at a time or to go to the Psalms and read one Psalm a day or the Proverbs and meet one. There's 31 Proverbs and you could read one chapter from Proverbs every day for a month and it's very helpful or beneficial. I would encourage to, as you think about reading the Word of God, to not use devotionals all the time. They're helpful, but how many of us would like to eat regurgitated supper all the time? It's not something that we do. Devotionals are very helpful. They're guides. But sometimes they push us away from thinking and studying the Bible on our own. So if you do follow devotions, maybe maybe alternate one day in a devotional, one day where you're diving in the Word of God yourself. Finding an Old Testament book, finding a New Testament book. There's lots of things that can help you to develop this habit of beginning and staying consistent in the Word of God. What do you do when you read the Bible? You, you might be thinking, well, I've never heard of reading the Bible on, the basic, uh, on a daily basis. So you, okay, you told me I need to set aside some time. You told me I should pick a book and read it through. So what do I do? Well, as you read the Bible, you do. You simply might say, God, would you help me today? Would you show me something in your word that will help me with the issues or the things that I'm facing today? It might be a promise that, that you're looking for from God that you will remember throughout the day that will help you when you hit rough times. It might be something about the character of God or about Christ who's revealed in the text and it just begins to blow your mind as you go through the day and you just think about the compassion of Christ or the mercy of Christ or the grace of Christ and you let that fill your heart and mind throughout the day. Maybe it's some something that helps you praise God throughout the day. Maybe it's an example that you need to learn from or a habit that you need to need to address in your life maybe it's a warning that you need to heed and so as you come to the word of God you come with an open mind saying God help me or God teach me through your word I was thinking of this and and I I won't go through all of them I, I listed a number of the things that just God has shown me in the in the past couple of weeks as I read through the Bible help that he's given me I was reading the other day I've been reading through the book of Job just a fascinating book. And every year when I come to that book, I just love th- my time in that book. And there's a certain section in the book of Job where Job recounts his righteousness, if we can do such a thing. But he talks about all the ways that he had determined that he would walk with God, all the things that he would avoid so that he didn't bring disrepute on the name of God, all the things that he set up in his life to protect him from sinning. And at some point, he comes to this this. this place where he writes in the text, for disaster from God terrifies me, and because of his majesty, I could not do these things. For the last four or five days, I have been swirling around in my head this one phrase, because of his majesty, I couldn't do these things. And what a help it has been as I faced temptation. What a help it's been as I battled with thoughts in my life. It's as I battled with different issues in my life to just rehearse that one phrase in my head again and again. Because of His majesty, I could not do these things. It was just a, 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 the course of my reading that day that that verse was driven home into my heart. A, a couple of weeks ago, and I shared some of this with our staff, I was just at a loss for stuff. Didn't know what to do. Didn't, didn't have solutions to any problem that I was facing. And I really felt like I was at my wit's end. And I read in two places in Ezra and Nehemiah this one phrase. One was about King Xerxes, Artaxerxes. And he had rounded up all the things that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the people of Israel and, he had, and brought them into captivity. He rounded them all up and he amassed them, and he said, I'm going to send these back to Jerusalem so that you can rebuild your temple. And he also said, anybody who we've taken captive, you can go home too, and we'll send you resources, we'll give you letters for all of this stuff that you need, so nobody will stand in your way. And Ezra is summarizing that, and I think he's blown away by this. How could a pagan king do all this stuff for God's people? And he had this little phrase, because God had put it in the mind of Artaxerxes. And I thought, God, that's it. And I started praying, God, would you put into the mind of people, and I was thinking specifically of somebody to, to, to apply for our youth position because we just had come to a dead end. And I, and I was beginning to get frustrated and worried. And I said, God, would you put it into somebody's mind that they ought to check out our church and consider that position. And I believe that that has happened, and you'll hear more about this next week. But then um, I was facing all these kind of problems, and I was looking a little bit ahead in Nehemiah, and here's Nehemiah. He walks into a city, and I was reading about the problem that he faced in Jerusalem, that they built the wall and but Jerusalem was empty, and nobody wanted to live in Jerusalem. And he didn't know what to do. And so he came up with this plan, and at the end of it, it was a brilliant plan. How did he summarize it? He said, God put it into my mind. And I was thinking about that of the, I just started praying. I said, God, you know what's before me in the next two or three weeks. I have no idea what to do, but would you put it into my mind, the stuff that I need to know and do and give me solutions to problems. And I believe that God has done that. It's just, it's just examples of as you read the Bible, latch on to a phrase, latch on to a promise, latch on to an idea, and plead with God. He knows what you need. The Bible is a means through which God graciously blesses us i read earlier this week in one of the blogs that i read about how when scuba divers go down deep into the ocean or a lake it's easy for them to become confused and disorientated since water diffuses light divers often find themselves surrounded by illumination making it difficult for them to discern which way is up And the feeling of weightlessness and without a sense of gravity, it also contributes to the confusion that they experience when they're underwater. The only way to distinguish up from down is to watch the direction of their air bubbles in which way they travel. Divers who lose their sense of direction risk drowning if they trust their inner senses more than the direction of the bubbles they are taught early on that no matter how they feel no matter what they think the bibles or the bubbles are always right not bubbles the clown but bubbles they're always right it's true of the word of god you know you and i face all kinds of difficult decisions in life We need wisdom that that just doesn't seem accessible to us. And so we will read books and we will read articles and we will talk to people and we will consult friends and we will watch this program and we will watch that program. But even after that, we can become so disoriented because we have so many ideas and so much going on in us that we're confused and we're disoriented. and, And no matter what the advice we get, we still can't make clear sense of it until we come to the Bible. And somehow, loved ones... We have to come to the point where we convince ourselves, because it's true, that the Bible is always true. That no matter what we hear and no matter what we read, we might be disoriented, but we will never lose our direction if we commit ourselves to the Word of God. The Word of God are like bubbles to a diver underground. It always shows us the right way. The Word of God is a means of grace that God has given to us that we might find Christ, that we might know God, and that we might live a life that is pleasing to Him. The second thing that God has given us are, and we practice them here at the church, if, if you're not familiar with church life and you come here for any time, you'll see them. We, we practice baptism by water and the Lord's table, which is uh, juice and wine that we, um, that we share together as a reminder of the Lord's death. We understand that you, are, you do not receive grace through them. They are not means of saving grace. But as you participate in baptism and as you participate at the Lord's table, you receive blessings from God and they point you to Christ and they point you to things that God has done. We only practice two here in this church. We practice two because we believe they are the only two things that were instituted by Christ, that they are intended to be observed repeatedly, and that they are intended to be observed amongst all God's people. That's why we have these two ordinances. So you might think, well, how do they work? How do they communicate God's grace to us? And, and that's even strange language to say, well, how does something work? Well, let me talk about baptism for a moment. If you've ever been a Christian, or if you've been a Christian for any length of time, there's no doubt that at some point you've wrestled with whether or not God still loves you. You've wrestled with assurance in your heart that you know you're a follower of God. You might have fallen into a season of deep sin or deep testing, and, and you've, you've walked away from God, or, or you feel that God has left you alone, and you wonder, well, has God forgiven me? Has God washed me? Has God cleansed me? What do you do when you hit seasons like that? I think one of the first things you do is you go back to your baptism. And in your baptism, you remember there your declaration that you decided to follow Jesus Christ. And that baptism was an outward symbol of something that had happened to you inside. And what had happened to you inside was you believed that you had been died, that you had died with Christ, that you had been buried with Christ, that you had been raised with Christ, and you were put down in the water, that putting down in the water and the water washing over you symbolized the blood of Christ that washed over you and forgave your sins. And as you think about your baptism, and then as you witness baptisms time and time again, you can remind it, be reminded, no, I have been washed, I have been cleansed, I have been raised with Christ, I am His. And it's a symbol and a reminder to you that you are a secure child of God. What about the Lord's table? Have you ever had times where you felt that the Lord has abandoned you? Times when you felt all alone, times where you at your wit's end, that maybe God has cast you off or he's cut you loose. When you come to the table and we share the bread and we share the juice, it says, if Jesus says to us, you see, I went through this for you, do you think that I'm going to walk away from you now in this time of difficulty? No, at the Lord's table, we are reminded that through the blood of Christ, we have been brought into an eternal covenant with God, never to be erased, never to be broken. And so we can be assured that we will never be abandoned because Christ was forsaken for us. And so through these two things, the Lord's table and through baptism, we recognize the different ways in which God has communicated to us saving grace through Jesus Christ and the reminders to us of what God has done for us in Christ. When Kath and I first came uh, to Parksville a number of years ago, you graciously had a grocery shower for us. And I know now that some of you purposely tore off the labels on some of the cans. And we had no way of knowing what was in those cans. And so if Kathy asked me for a can of tomato soup, you can be sure that I did my best to find actually a can that had the label tomato soup on it. And if that was the case, wouldn't you feel more assured of getting tomato soup from a can that had a label tomato soup on it than one that didn't? Because the label gives you a certain amount of assurance that what's said on the outside is actually what's on the inside. And that's the same with baptism. It's the same with the Lord's table. These are physical symbols of spiritual realities that have taken place in our hearts and lives. And so these are means of grace, or these are ways in which God communicates to us what Christ has done for us. What about prayer? Prayer, I think, is the grace of relationship. Praying for a Christian is like breathing for a human being. And breathing, as breathing is an indication of physical life, I do believe that there's a great deal of truth in saying that prayer is an indication of spiritual life. Jesus assumed that we would pray. Back in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about this. And when he talks to the disciples and he says to them clearly, he says, "...when you pray." Do not be like the hypocrites. There there wasn't the if you pray or should you determine that it was a good thing to pray. His assumption was that they all prayed. And so he said to them, when you pray. He takes it for granted that those who follow him pray. It's an incredible gift of fellowship that God has given to you and I as his sons and daughters to communicate with him. Jesus teaches them how to pray. If you've just started to pray or you're seeming to get off track a little bit, I think these words in chapter 6, verses 6 to 15 are so helpful to us as we consider praying. I really don't know, for instance, if the first part of the Lord's, uh, what he taught them in verse 9, is even sunken in my head, our Father, who art in heaven. That In the first place, tells me that prayer is a unique activity that it illustrates a unique relationship that we have that others who don't know God don't have. Have you ever thought about that? Does does it not seem like such a, a massive gap between acknowledging God to be almighty, maker of heaven and earth, holy, as we sang at the beginning of the service, and then our Father? It's beyond what I can imagine sometimes. And I, I, I do sometimes have just this hesitation to go before God and call him Father. I'm much more comfortable saying God Almighty. I'm much more comfortable saying creator of heaven and earth. I'm much more comfortable saying O righteous one or O holy one than I am my Father. I think most of us have had at least okay experiences with our earthly fathers. And most of us have had the experience that when we asked our fathers for something or they knew what we needed or even wanted, that they would give us as closely as possible within their means the things that we wanted. If we ask our our dad for a piece of bread, he didn't dig up a scorpion somewhere and say, here you go, Paul. And Jesus uses that and he says, listen, if we then... Who are evil know how to give good gifts. How much more does our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You might have noticed in this prayer, if you've ever read it Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he teaches them to start with God. Where do you start in your prayers most often? I, I think sometimes we are so quick to come into God with, with our stuff. But there's an orientation that takes place, as, and we'll talk about this in worship in a minute, but there's an orientation that takes place as we come into God's presence that our first concern ought to be with God and the things that matter to God. His name and His kingdom and His will. That Those things ought to occupy us because in the end of the day, those are the things that are best for us as well. It's not that our needs don't matter. It's not that our requests don't matter. It's just how we start in praying and where we begin. But then as we move on from God, we do recognize that we have anxiety in our life. And so we pray, God, would you give us our daily needs? We do have guilt in our lives. And so we will pray from time to time, Father, forgive us. We do have weaknesses in our lives. And so we pray for protection that God would deliver us from the evil one. You might have noticed if you read this text, and I've given it to you, but Jesus says there, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard from any words. I think it's most best to just keep prayer simple. God doesn't care about flowery stuff. God doesn't care about the adverbs and the adjectives. God just wants us to simply come before him with the things that are on our mind and with the things that occupy his mind. Short and simple. I think sometimes we try and pray like the King James Version. I think sometimes we try and pray to impress people. But it doesn't impress God. I was thinking of this the other day. Uh, My grandchildren were all around and uh, my boys were all up as well. I've been watching them. And my grandkids, they're not very, some of them are older now. I think the oldest one is five years old. Um, but, But when they communicate with their dad, they don't have this professional verbiage that they use and, all the right phrases and all the right things tied together. Sometimes, some of them, they can't even speak, but they can point or they can grunt or they can get one word out. And I am amazed at the ability of my boys to understand what my grandchildren are asking of them. And I think that's what God is like. And to add to that, we have the Holy Spirit who helps us pray when we don't know what to pray. And so it's not about having long, flowery, profound things to say. It's just about being short and simple and telling God what we need. He says there, they love to stand and pray and to be seen by others. I say to you, they've received your reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. I think there's a place for prayer I am so I'm amazed at the the movement of prayer that's beginning to happen in this church. I don't get it. I just know there's prayer happening all over the place, and, and I am so encouraged by it. And you can find opportunities to pray. These groups would be happy to have you join with them as they pray. But I do think that it also is important that we get alone with our Father on our own on a daily basis that we get away from everything else that is impinging on our time, that we have a place to go. It might be a chair, it might be a room, it might be a workshop, it might be a backyard, it might be a place that we walk. But some place where we can have some alone time, some quiet time, some specific time that is directed just between God and us. Nobody else knows, nobody else sees. It's not about them, it's about us and God doesn't mean that we don't pray as we drive to work. It doesn't mean that we don't pray as we're working. It doesn't mean that I don't pray as I'm preaching. I do. It doesn't mean that we don't pray at all at other times. But there are times in our day where we just set it aside. We, we focus on our relationship with God and our communication to Him. So just start the day or end the day in secret for a few minutes with your Father. And then talk to Him for the rest of the day or as you fall asleep. The fourth means of grace after prayer and the ordinance in the word of God is worship. Worship. As I talk about worship today, I'm not talking about what we do Monday to Saturday and the rest of Sunday. What I want to refer to is what we do when we gather together here. Because this is an incredible way in which God pours into our lives as his people. When we worship, we ought to come here expecting to meet God. Is that what you came here to do today? Did you come here expecting to encounter God? Expecting to hear from God? Expecting God maybe would meet your need? It's not about all the stuff that goes on around us, but what it is about is our head and our heart saying, God, I need to meet with you today. And it's something that we do corporately as a family. In Revelation, it talks about a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As one writer of spiritual dis- disciplines put, there's an element of worship in Christianity Listen to this, that cannot be experienced in private worship or by watching worship. Understand what he's saying? There is something that happens when we gather together um, personally, physically, corporately that can only happen then, not privately, or while watching worship on TV. There are some graces and blessings that God gives only in meeting together with others writes Donald Whitney, and I believe that to be true. I understand that as we gather together as a church, there is going to be difficulty from time to time. We've talked about, and and you've probably read it, about the worship wars and uh, the difficulties that churches have in finding a pattern of worship that sort of makes everybody happy, so to speak. We've wrestled with that a little bit here in our own church, and I thank the Lord for the grace that's here. I thank the Lord for the, for the give and take that is here, and we continue to need that as we have such a diverse group of people that worship together. But I hope you understand that when we gather together, it's not to entertain you. We don't come here to be entertained. It's not our goal that we come here and that we enjoy ourselves or that everything be pleasant and thrilling. Sometimes we use drums. Some people don't like drums. Sometimes we have the lights on. Some people like it dark. Sometimes we have it dark. People like it light. It's not about entertaining, though, or enjoying yourself. It's not about the preacher being a good storyteller or a good jokester. Although I wish I could tell better stories and I wish I could tell better jokes, I'm just not good at it. It's not about fast food either. Well, that I mean, it's not that we come into a, a church service like this and it's all about my wants and needs. Well, this is what I want today and this is what I need today. And boy, they didn't offer that today and I'm really um, not happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's not about our personal needs and about our personal wants when we get together. Nor is it about preaching only. And I fear this sometimes. That Sometimes we treat church as, as though the main event is the sermon. And everything else is leading up to that. Like the worship and the, the offering and the, 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 you know, the scripture reading and prayer. And those are all kinds of stuff. But the real important thing is preaching. You know, I think if I ever felt that, I would be inclined to just stay seated. Worship is not just about preaching. That is an important part of our worship, but so is our giving, and so is our praying, and so is our singing, and so is our thinking, so is our greeting, so are our announcements. They are all part of worship here together. It would seem to me that the focus in all of those, whether it's entertainment or fast food or preaching, is that it's about me, and it's about what I want, and it's about what I need worship is about God it's only about God and the reason that we get together in worship is because God ought to be worshiped we worship his power his might his righteousness his holiness his care his providence his salvation his mighty works his creation and on and on and on we gather to focus on God and to wrestle with God and to adore God and to call out to God and to thank God and to plead with God I would encourage you to just try week by week as you're thinking about coming to worship. Say, God, I I do have all these needs and I do prefer this over that, but God, I need to meet you today. I need to hear from you today. I need to have an encounter with you. My soul hungers and thirsts after you. I faint after you like a deer in a desert place. And as we come together as God's people, it's not that God doesn't meet our needs. It's like prayer. We start with God and then God in His mercy, and His, He just he pours into us. And He provides what we need. And He gives us the guidance and the encouragement and the help and the healing or the strength to go on with sickness or difficulty. But we start with God. Worship is an incredible way in which God communicates His grace to us. And the final one is fellowship, the grace of family. I am amazed that we get to call Christ brother. I don't know, sometimes, again, it almost seems um, wrong to say that Christ is our brother. But he is our brother. Hebrews tells us that Christ is our brother. When Jesus met the ladies at the tomb, he said to them, go and tell my brothers. imagine being in the same family as jesus and then he says and say to them i am sending to my father and your father they're one in the same christ is our brother his father is our father we are part of a fellowship we are part of a group together we enjoy this relationship with god the father and with christ the son and with the holy spirit and as we gather together with God's people, we experience that fellowship with one another. We're part of God's family. We're part of his household. As this is the case, we ought to want to spend time with one another. We ought to understand that, that we, we, we learn from one another. We help one another. We receive from one another. You know the one another's, I think there's like 14 or 15. Pray for one another. Exhort one another. Encourage one another. Bear with one another's burdens. Like, they're all over the Scripture. That's what happens when we gather together. That's what it means to be part of a fellowship. And when we remove ourselves from fellowship, we remove ourselves from an incredible instrument of God's grace to us. A member of a certain church who had been previously not attending services regularly stopped going. After a few weeks, the pastor decided to visit. It was a chilly evening. The pastor found the man at home alone sitting before a blazing fire. Guessing the reason for the pastor's visit, the man welcomed him, led him to a big chair and a fireplace that was burning. The pastor made himself comfortable and said nothing. In the grave silence, he contemplated the play of the flames around the burning logs. After some minutes, the pastor got up and took fire tongs, carefully picked out a bright burning ember and placed it on one side of the hearth all alone. Then he sat back in his chair, still silent. The host watched all of this in quiet fascination. As the one lone ember's flame diminished, there was a momentary glow, and then the fire was no more. Soon it was cold and dead as a doornail. Not a word had been spoken since the initial greeting. Just before the pastor was ready to leave, He picked up the cold, dead ember and placed it back in the middle of the fire. Immediately, it began to glow once more with the light and warmth of a burning coals all around it. As the pastor reached the door to leave, his host said, thank you so much for your visit and especially for the fiery sermon. I shall be back in church next Sunday. It's just a simple illustration, but it's so true. We need the body of Christ. There is fellowship that we receive. There is encouragement. There is warning that we receive, and we give. I know this will embarrass Chris and Andrea, but I was so encouraged as we were worshiping this morning by their worship to hear them singing the songs of praise. We encourage one another by our presence and by our worship, and when you can't sing, somebody behind you can When somebody in front of you can't sing, you can. And when somebody says a word that matters, you say amen. And when a song comes along that you can clap, you clap. These are ways in which we encourage one another. And so these are means of grace that God uses to build us up in the things of Christ. The word of God, the sacraments, prayer, worship, and fellowship. May God help these to continue to be strong, meaningful aspects of our Corporate life here together at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the sort of broad sweep that we've taken over some of these things. And for maybe some who this is their first Sunday ever in church, it might have been just even a bit much. But I hope, Father, that they would get a sense that really what we want to know is how do we touch God? How do we encounter God? And for others of us who have maybe walked with you for many, many years, sometimes we just need a real basic, simple reminder of the ways in which you graciously communicate to us the spiritual blessings that just blow us away. So thank you for our time together this morning. And help us as we close our worship off now in song. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.